Holy Grail territory here, friends of the Canadian variety no less. Such is the greatness of Denim Delinquent, a legendary 1970s fanzine from Ottawa, Ontario you've heard of, but perhaps never seen. Copies are scarce and fetch serious collector dough, and for good reason. Denim Delinquent wipes the floor with what passes for rock writing past or present. How do I describe it? It is glorious, dirt-simple writing that reads like the prose equivalent of the music of the Stooges or Seeds. And we're talking dudes who, as far as writing is concerned, never graduated beyond Freud's id stage. Denim Delinquent may have improved and evolved with each issue, but it never really grew up. And that's a mighty high compliment. The good people at Hozak Records and Books released a massive Denim Delinquent anthology a couple of years ago, and of course it immediately went out of print. Jim Parrott was the engine behind Denim Delinquent, and he's a gem of a human being. Talking to him was a royal treat. So please enjoy this chat with Jim Parrott of Denim Delinquent on Rock Writ. Would you have ever guessed in a million years that there would have been like a Denim Delinquent book? No, absolutely not. And it wasn't until about 2015 that I uh, decided to put one of my issues up online. And just to see, to gauge what kind of a response it would get on eBay. And uh, in the last minute, it just garnered all these competitive bids and it got far more than I thought it would ever get. So I decided right that minute, I'm going to do a book. Did you have a notion that there was a bit of a cult following around Denim Delinquent before you put it up on eBay? Well, I went away to Saudi Arabia in the mid-90s. And when I came back, I did a little search on Denim Delinquent because we didn't have uh, online facilities in Saudi Arabia. So... I looked it up and I found uh, Chris Stigliano of Black mm-hmm. to Calm magazine. That's right. And I saw one of my illustrations on one of his covers. I went, what? <laughs> and so I contacted him and he sent me some issues and I started reading all his really very nice words. Shocked to me. I thought Denim Blake was long gone and forgotten. And while other editors of fanzines from the time went on to become writers and band members and, and all this kind of stuff. I had kind of gone to corporate life and faded into the background. You grew up in Montreal, I think? You grew up or you were in Montreal, in Montreal Ottawa. and then moved to Ottawa? Well, it was kind of back and forth. I was in Ottawa until I was about 13 and then moved to Montreal until I was 17 and moved back to Ottawa again. My dad was in the army. It's one of those things. What was going on in our nation's capital music-wise at that time? Well, unfortunately for me, I moved from Montreal. 1967 was a hotbed of activity. Bands were coming in. You had two radio stations, you know, going, I'd come home from school, and there was nonstop hits playing, and I'd be recording with my little recorder. It was an exciting time, and uh, culturally, going to parties and, and doing all this stuff, and then landing in Ottawa, and there was nothing where I was. It's just like a dead zone. So I spent three years just being kind of a musically nondescript area. Did you find any people who had similar interest in kind of left of center music? Not until late 69, 70, when I went to a concert in Montreal, and a friend of mine said, oh, I know somebody who wants to come along. And I was 19 at this time, and and drops this 14-year-old kid. (laughs) What is this? And we turned out to be great friends, and his name was Mark Jones. And that's, uh, he brought home about, I guess in 70 maybe, he brought home uh, two fanzines. One was called Black, was Greg Shaw's scene, who put the bomb. And I can't Mm -hmm. remember what the other one was. It might have been uh, Adney Chernoff's scene. 
Teenage Wasteland Gazette. I'm not sure, but we, I mean, I just flipped. I says, you know, I used to put scrapbooks together and I was a sports friend, you know, as a kid, about sports figures and write little captions and stuff. So I said, hey, why don't we put together a scene? We'll get some free records and, and we can pass them out, maybe get interviews with the bands. And he said, yeah, let's go. <laughs> I love how honest you are about the motivations there. It's often, yeah, like, free records, getting to meet some of your favorite bands, getting into shows and things like that. That's, I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, yeah. we just put out the first two kind of as a local, uh, I, I don't know what you'd call it. We didn't know what it was. Nobody else knew what it was. And people would ask me, what is this thing? Go, I don't know. We we're just having fun. <laughs> I don't talk about my podcast with a lot of friends because most of them just wouldn't care, but one or two have out of pity, I guess, like taking a listen to it and, the question afterwards would be, what's a fanzine? Just just having to explain, like, is this totally different world, right? Like, well, it's a magazine, but not quite. And I don't know what it is, to tell you the truth. It's a bit different from when I started. Mm -hmm. It was it was just a copy of uh, Who Put the Bomb, in my opinion. It was just, basically, by about the fourth issue, we actually used Greg Shaw's um, printer. So we tried to get it to look as much like the quality of that seeing the way the paper looked and everything. So was, for me, uh, the whole thing was about the look as much as the writing. And uh, when I started, I didn't want to write that much. I got all of uh, Mark's friends to write, but <laughs> they weren't really into it much. So I had to keep editing their stuff. And so I decided oh, I'll just start doing it myself. So why were you reluctant to write? I had, you know, I had sent some, um, reviews to different magazines and got usual rejections and I just I never had fun writing uh, I have had fun drawing but writing has always seemed kind of pedestrian to me it's really slow and it's words it's not something I can conceptualize as images so I I always felt uncomfortable in fact after the book was published I had a great opportunity to the dream is to write for what I consider the top magazine uh, and uh, so that I had some great uh, experiences doing some writing there, but I decided after about three or four reviews that it's really not writing for ugly things is great, but it's just not my thing. You know, I'm oh, kind of wild and crazy. I just want to write about my adventures. <laughs> How easily did that first issue come together? It took about oh, a year and a half, I would say, from <laughs> our conception. I did that cover or the outline of that cover. I would say probably late 69 or early 70. And it stayed around for about a year. And then I just added, you know, a Ray Davies on the cover and added in the text as we were getting ready to publish. But we didn't know what we were going to write about. I mean, it was just uh, play. And, and Mark, he was uh, so enthused about it, but he didn't want to write either. And he didn't want to do anything uh, actual physically to do with the issue. He was more like became a cheerleader. <laughs> And so we were both just two guys just laughing and joking. That was really what it was about. Yeah, but eventually it materialized. And, and how was it received? You guys printed off, I think, 100 issues of that first? 100 I think 100, first and then 200 became our standard because that was the, the level where we, we did offset after, you know, so I have to, have to get a certain amount. I think it's 200 is the amount anyway that came out to me first two issues we just took it around to the record stores and just 
laid them down on a, where there was be some uh, newspapers and stuff. We just added there. We never looked for money or anything. And uh, Mark would go to the university and hand them out in the corridors and things like that. So we never were really into the money thing. And our friends thought it was the most hilarious, stupid thing they'd ever seen. And nobody knew what to make out of it. But I found when I sent it to Greg Shaw and different um, fanzines, we were getting good response. And we started getting subscribers from the United States and Germany and Japan. And uh, it sort of took off from there. You had in that first issue, there was a Kinks piece you wrote that not everybody loved. <laughs> Oh, I was trying to, I was like, it didn't work, but I was I was having so much fun. I thought, I'm going to do something different. I'm tired of all these intellectuals posing as rock fans. I'm going to let you see in Rolling Stone and stuff. So I was going to write like the music sounds. I'm going to write these short bursts, like these Dave Davies chords. And it's kind of, uh, you really got me kind of sound that Ray Davies made, you know, that sort of Louis, Louis snot nose thing. <laughs> so that was my thing. I'm going to write about every band, like the band sounds to me. <laughs> so it didn't work, but I had some fun. So were you kind of, like, were you listening to the music then, Jim, and, and trying to kind of mimic and capture like the like the simple energy of? Uh, I think that was most, I don't think I was trying. I think it was just kind of like, let's just have fun. You know, I yeah. was sitting in my, in, really in my bedroom on my bed with my headphones on, listening to records and typing like crazy and drawing like crazy and just you know laughing to myself, you know, kind of like you know, I was a Mad Magazine freak and Monty Python later and uh, Vivian Stanchel of the Bonzo Docs and writing in those voices in my head and just, you know, it was never anything serious. You know, I get letters from other fanzine uh, editors once in a while and they'd be breaking me through the crawl saying, you know, you got to up your game. You know, the writing's terrible. <laughs> what? You know, it's really disheartening for a while there. I think there was something, I'm thinking of like your Seeds piece, which is written in this like really clipped kind of short, like declarative sentences. Like there's almost something poetic going on. I, I know it's like simple and crude. <laughs> there's a bit of a well, lovely like, poetry happening there at the same time. Well, thank you. It's more like two chord Jan Savage writing. <laughs> And your your tastes also kind of tended towards some of the simple stuff, like the Seeds music is as crude and simple as it gets. So it, there's nothing more appropriate than writing crude, kind of simple poetry, a few words at a time. Oh, I think that's the, the essence of art. Yeah, it's 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 the same with why I love the Stooges. That first album is the same thing. You just get rid of all the BS and you just present the simplest form it can cut you take out all the extraneous words that you just bring it to the feeling you know you know it's like Icky Pop once was in a tree on some TV show and he says you know it's like Frank Sinatra I don't care about the intellectual just tell me how it feels and that's yeah. the way it was for me just, I just wanted people to tell me how it feels I want to tell people how it feels I don't really care about the birth dates of who this is or what band they were in before I just want to know Tell me how it feels. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Look, a lot of my favorite bands and probably some of yours also kind of straddle that line between so dumb that people wonder, like, is this for real? And also, like, brightness. Like, I'm thinking of, like, the Stooges and the Ramones and the Seeds and the Germs. Like, these are obviously... The New York like, Dolls. And the Dolls, yeah. Super yeah. bright people who just 
reduced music to like the simplest thing in a knowing way, but not in a contrived way. That's a great, great, great quote. Yeah, not in a contrived way. That's the opposite of contrived. It should be as real as possible. It should be like Sir Douglas's song, Be Real. It should be just from the heart, from the spirit. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. There's kind of like people who are, you know, are clean their walks and, and mow their lawns and want everything pruned and, and clean and anal and you know i just want to crunch on the leaves of life you know and rock and roll's like that you're walking on the crunching leaves in the autumn you know it's the crunch 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 it's, it doesn't sound beautiful but it feels great <laughs> yeah yeah you mentioned greg shaw was was a booster of the magazine but he also it wasn't it was different than what he was up to he was doing more analytical writing and he he said of denim delinquent it's not very scholarly did you guys take that well? Was it like, great, Greg Shaw said, we're not very scholarly. Well, that was later. That was in 98 when he uh, called me up, actually, out of the blue. I had been on his uh, bomb list. You know, it was, I don't know if you're familiar with bomb list, but it was just sort of like an early online collection of rock bands talking online, chatting. Mm-hmm. And uh, he called me up and he says, hey, I, got to, I want you to do a cover for... Uh, one of the Stooges releases. Can you send me the covers of one of your Denim Delinquents, uh, number five, the cover that I used? Can you send me the, the original of that and we'll, I'll make a cover for, yeah, this is great. And then he, another time he called me up just a little bit later and said, can you do liner notes? I said, great. So that's when he told me, he says, you know, I've been looking at your, I'm thinking out all your issues. Not very scholarly, but I like the way you write. <laughs> That's good, but not very scholarly. I wish that could be the, the subtitle for Denim's language. Not very scholarly. Love it. <laughs> Put that on your tombstone, Jim. No. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Batch of honor. Yeah. You mentioned the illustrations you were doing. Was that one of your favorite parts of? Well, that was it. I just wanted to lay out a magazine. And I would have those things. See, each one of those took about a year to come out at least, at least in the beginning. And I would just lay it out and there'd be no text in there. And I'd be waiting for Mark's friends to bring me text to put in there. But then they would bring me stuff like Alice Cooper. I loved Alice Cooper. I would, on, when Love It to Death came out, I, it was one of the first shows I worked my way up to the front in front of the Glenn Buxton's app and just sat there. Well, the review that was submitted to me by one of Mark's friends was all about the show and how she didn't like it and everything. So I had to sort of rewrite it. That kind of stuff happened all the time. So I just started, said, oh, I'm just going to do the writing myself. I know initially when you guys started, you didn't really have an audience in mind because people just didn't understand what you guys were up to, was the fact that you didn't have to cater to anybody, was it quite liberating? Oh, absolutely. It was just Mark and me. I mean, we were just making it. And then when Mark lost interest after the second issue, um, it was very liberating. I went to um, England for a few months. I went around Europe, actually. And I saw the New York Dolls, and I saw Martha Hoople, and I saw different bands, and I followed the Kinks around the UK. And I just came back in about, I don't know, just a matter of days, I just typed up this issue, just raving. I was just having a great, that was probably my favorite moment in Denver, like, was just having this ball doing this thing. And then I went and got it mimeographed. Unfortunately, they were running out of ink or whatever. I don't know about mimeo. Mimeo, I've done offset before that. It's all came out rather, uh, you can hardly read it. But that was, that was when I said, okay, I'm going to do this for real. 
The music I, energized you. Oh, that was my life. I mean, that's it. I come out from school and uh, put on my headphones and, you know, or go out record shopping. And, you know, I spent my days record shopping, not going to class. <laughs> and, was, uh, yeah. Was music listening primarily a solitary thing for you? Just coming? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. When yeah. I got to Ottawa, I was alone. I mean, I didn't know anybody for three years until I met Mark. So I would just come home from, you know, class and then put the headphones on and, and, Radio, put the radio on. In those days, the radio was awesome. You know, especially in 66, 67, you would come home from school. There'd be like things. I had a tape recorder. It was so so many things going on so fast. I had a tape recorder and I would tape them. And I'd catch things like, who do you love? And I didn't know who that was for decades until I found it was the bullies. <laughs> you know, I'd get all these little songs. they play once. Yeah, and if you miss the first few seconds of it, you have no idea who it is. Exactly. So I had all these little tracks. Comes on months later, maybe. Yes. Yeah. You mentioned your dad was in the army. How did your dad take to all of this? Your interest in this kind of out there music and denim delinquent? Not well. I actually hid denim delinquent from my parents. They didn't know I was doing it. And then, oh wow. Uh, yeah, my sisters were broke cover for me because I would. I was so worried about. You know, everything made them cry. You know, <laughs> I get, everything I would do would upset them. So it was always a case of, you know, oh, don't want to embarrass my parents sort of thing. So, they, yeah, all they hated it. They, my dad called, didn't think I was very manly because of, you know, uh, because of my interest in it. So he would, he's in the army, so he would give me a hard time. You mentioned taking denim delinquent to local record stores, not even for a consignment, just like dumping a pile there. How, yeah, yeah, how were yeah, record we, stores with that? Did they wonder what, like, sure, you can put it there, but were they? You don't know. I don't know. We would just dump <laughs> them there and leave. Uh, but so the main record store in Ottawa was the Treble Clap. And it was Brian Murphy was the, the manager, I'm guessing. And I made friends with him. So he would be my one sort of guy I would... I would sort of you know, head to class and then just keep going down, <laughs> travel, walk in and talk to this guy. And that would be my life back then until Denim Delinquent hit. And then he, he took a liking to it. So he put an ad in one of the issues. Other than that, though, I, I think it was partly because of the bad, um, bad vibes I were getting from Mark's uh, brother and his friends, who were the most, mainly our audience. And Mark's brother, Evan, right, wrote for it, as a matter of fact. And it was a, an absolute stooges freak. He would put on his uh, silver gloves at parties and clear out the room. <laughs> Just going wild to Funhouse. Yeah. Within a few issues, you guys started getting props from other rock writers and fancy writers as well. Yeah, number four. When we moved, um, when I... Met up with Dee, who I later married. We headed down to uh, California for a year. She had some money. So we went down, and that's when we met Greg Shaw. And uh, he set me up with different uh, people, record companies and stuff. That I could go. He was such a great guy, that guy. And he would set us up with everybody. And uh, so we would go around to Starwood and the Whiskey, and we just set up residence in all these places and all the record shops and uh, it was quite a year so we got two issues out of that single year and it was a lucky encounter with Iggy Pop during a sort of a off year in 1974 that sort of resurrected the uh, zine and gave me sort of a, a goal okay let's just do the whiskey let's just make this a year of fun that we're having every night going to all these clubs so that's those two issues were 
turned out pretty well. And that's when people started noticing it. That sounds like an unreal year. And it sounds oh. like getting, getting out of Ottawa when you went to England and when you, when you went to Los Angeles. Were yeah, because I came back. Or the I came, itself. Yeah, I came back from England. And within a, a, just a couple of weeks, I had put out that number three issue and was down in the States. And all of a sudden in California, going to the whiskey every night. And it was just, and all these record stores getting cheap records compared to what they were like in Canada and the availability. It was, I was in paradise for a year. Yeah. What, what are some of the shows that you saw then? In California? Yeah. Oh, I saw the whiskey. You just see these all cornucopia of bands, past, present, and future. You get to see like Eric Bird one night, and you get to see Journey before they became Journey when they were just this band with Ainsley Dunbar drumming. Like, you know, it's incredible stuff. With, uh, Blue Cheer, British bands, Sutherland Brothers and Quiver, and uh, you know, just one after the other. You, I can't remember uh, all the people, people. So there's just you have to look in the magazine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And did you did you get to meet Iggy Pop? Oh, that was one of my most memorable experiences of all time. It was one of the first times in the whiskey. Me and Dee are walking in, and we come to the bottom of the stairs that are in the whiskey, and this ball of pink and fur comes rolling down, like tumbling down the stairs pops up in front of us with arms out saying, hi, I'm Mickey Pop, I'm from Detroit. <laughs> Where are you from? <laughs> and so we sort of became a little bit friendly with him and uh, we went up and, you know, another night went up and then Kim Valley was there and Ray Eric was there and a couple of the runaways were there. And it's just one of those things you go, wow. And they're all reading Denim Delinquents and they're all going, this is cool. <laughs> that was like one of the best nights of my life. Sounds amazing. Yeah. You had all kinds of fans. Even Morrissey was a fan, I understand. Well, yeah, I found out later. Well, I remember that we used to get letters from the UK. There weren't as many as the United States. The States were really 99% of who were our subscribers. So we got this Stephen Morrissey character who would write. And uh, so I'd send them issues. And then the next thing, you know, sometime in the 80s, uh, when I was... I don't know, it was in the 90s when I came back to Saudi Arabia and I searched Dennis Lankwood. I saw that he had etched one of the sayings from the back cover, one of the issues, onto a, uh, one of his EPs. So I thought, how cool is that? That's amazing respect. <laughs> well, he said, I think he must have seen the New York Dolls issue that I put out. Um, I'm guessing that was the connection. I don't know. He was a massive Dolls fan, I know. Yeah, I have a copy of a zine that he put out on them. So it's kind of nice oh, wow. to, to see him zining, you know? Yeah, yeah. He was, he was totally enmeshed in that culture in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Lester Bangs even wrote a piece for you guys. Oh, yeah. But that was a thrill. Well, I'd been sending Crane, you know, a couple of in reviews, and I never heard anything back. And all of a sudden, I get this big article. You know, and we're already gone, going to press. You know, I was already finished, so I didn't uh, do anything. Anyway, that was that was amazing having Lester Banks, right? Like this unsolicited piece just arrives and drops on your lap, right? Yeah, because I was feeling kind of, you know, bad that, you know, I couldn't get published anywhere, especially in Cream. I thought, oh, I had that be a natural fit. But no, and uh, so just one day, here it is, you know, here. Here we are. It's a slong, it's a slong article too. It's yeah, it's kind of nice. 
That's amazing. Did you have a favorite piece that you wrote, Jim? Not really. I, I you know what? Just despite the year I spent scanning and scanning and scanning and mapping it out for the book, I never read anything. I just couldn't do it. I mean, just had such a bad vibe from my youth to putting it on. So many bad experiences, people talking about it. And I just, I thought, I don't want to read it. I don't want to look, I just want to lay it out and make sure it looks good. So when I, when I, when I did the last radio interview um, with Miriam Lina, she was, so kind. Mm-hmm. She asked me to actually read something. I was so shocked. And it was really exhilarating uh, to actually, after all this early abuse, just to come out and sort of read my stuff. It was, wow. <laughs> it was fun. I hope you feel validated a little bit. Or after oh, yeah. Yeah. That's all over with now. I think I'm writing for Vulture and for uh, ugly things too, and, and doing my serious kind of rock writer writing. You know, and had some good feedback. And I thought, you know, that's all I need, you know. So I retired really from writing now because I can't I can't really come up with the kind of energy and wildness uh, and feel confident in publishing. Because I'm always thinking now when I write, oh, somebody's reading this. It's not like when I was doing Dan Blanco, it's like, who cares? Now it's like, oh, there's all these rock experts reading this. You know, oh, I can't do that. You just became self-conscious that... Yeah, well, it's personal for me. Rock and roll is about feeling. It's about my emotions. I, I don't like most of the sacred cows of rock. I, I mean, even a punk or even a... You know, I, I, I just like my peculiar little brand of little simple seeds, stooges, Mata Hoopla, uh, New York Dolls, kind of just the, the brass, even Kiss. You know, people complain about Kiss, but when they first came out, they just... they got all the BS out of the sound. It was just simple nothingness, you know, just here it is, just volume. You know, it's like Ron Ashton said, you know, with the Stooges, everybody talks about the Stooges, this, Stooges, this, but really it was about the volume and the sound. That's, mm-hmm. He really nailed it on the head. He said, that's what it was about. Yeah. Did you play any music yourself? I've had always had guitars, but I can't play worse shit. <laughs> Ashton, stop you. So I sold, I sold my guitar a while ago. The last guitar I had, Melody Maker, pretty nice. No, and uh, I, my ears are sort of gone, so I don't listen to much music anymore. Uh, until I get a hearing aid, that is. That's mm. next in line. You mentioned doing some, like, pro-music journalism. You, you dabbed a bit in that in the 70s. Was this after yeah. Denim Delinquent? Well, I was, I was lucky that uh, Gene Simmons of Kiss had read something in Denim Delinquent. And he'd sent me postcards from around the world. He was traveling. And when he came to town, he, he went to the local prosine and said, I want this guy to do the interview. So, wow, I got in with a magazine called Cheap Thrills, which is run by the promoter uh, for Canada about concerts. And they had the magazine. And so I got to do that. And I even got offered uh, the editorship right after that, thanks to Gene Simmons as well. But I had to turn it down because I just didn't feel confident, you know, uh, in my writing ability and to, to, to take, to be editor. But I wish I had done it now because I'm not the same person I was then. How did Denim Delinquent come to an end? And then, uh, you know, there's a lot of things. Well, one of the, the primary things was I was, I was 26. You know, I was thinking I was getting a little old. I had a family and two kids. And I wasn't making much money in the job I had. So it was a struggle, you know, just to put another issue out. 
but, but the biggest thing of all is the number five, the issue that we had uh, lots of Iggy stuff in it, Danny Iggy Sugarman, his manager was writing for, the, for it. We had talked too much about Iggy's private life Mm -hmm. And uh, we were supposed to have the next issue. It was supposed to be exclusively interviews with Iggy, the rest of the Stooges, if we could get them, James Williamson, and The Doors, because we had, uh, he was also managing, Danny was also managing Gray Man's Eric. Right. So uh, he was so angry with the way we covered it. He says, we'll never have another interview with us again. So I was kind of lost after that for what I was going to put in the magazine. And, it didn't get great, number six didn't get a great review. I believe I never read it in what the Bob, which was our primary source. So I just said, you know what, uh, can't do this anymore. And unfortunately, I didn't know. So when I quit, it was the beginning of the punk era, that there's a whole fanzine uh, revolution going on. So it went from a few people to suddenly hundreds of zines. If you knew punk was just around the corner and then there would be this explosion of music and fandom happening do you think you may have hung around and, and kept it going yeah but I, I i would don't think i got punk at, at first i love the um six pistols the damned and later on the dead boys became my favorite and the dictators of course you know all those kind of bands but not the new wave stuff i found too much of the new york scene to be kind of i don't know i just I just like the crunch of rock and roll. I don't, mm -hmm. don't like the talking heads kind of stuff. It just, you know, I sort of, I don't know. I think my day was done, you know. That stuff was a bit eggheady. It, it came from a different place a bit. Yeah, I was just into the rock and roll. I mean, to me, dead boys and dictators don't aren't punk, but people will argue with me. They were just rock and roll bands. So after music, writing, the fanzine journalism, you kept writing, though, as, uh, as a technical writer. Is that right? Yeah, I've been a technical writer since the late 70s, and I just kept doing it. I was terrible at it. I was ill-suited for it. But, uh, you know, because I had done that on Link when I got a job, I <laughs> could believe it. Just not that they looked at an issue, my first uh, technical writing job. It's just you put it down. Oh, I was an editor of Den of Link. Oh, you were right. Okay, sure. You're hired. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. That's like your portfolio for a job. That's, that's well, that's cool. the way I first got in. And it was you know, one of those crazy things. You just, in those days, it wasn't as, you know, you're not checked as much as, you know, can you just take the real word for it? Yeah. So I started uh, technical writing because because of dental actually. And I just kept doing it for years because, I didn't know what else to do. I had two kids, you know, child support, and and it's a low-paying job. It's terribly low-paying job. It's called the Velvet Ghetto when I joined, but I I never gave up the rock and roll thing. I mean, even though I never didn't publish anything or write anything, my kids will tell you I was terrible. I would take them to record stores. All I mean, I still lived in record stores. I still buying records all through the '80s, even though uh, there wasn't much I liked in the '90s too. Do you still go record shopping out in Bangor? No, no, I haven't in about 10 years. I mean, there's a great record store here uh, uh, called Neptune Records. It's just fantastic. I, I like to go in there once in a while just because the atmosphere is just, ah, this is where I used to come to relax, these record stores. So it's just a feeling, but uh, I don't go record shopping anymore, no. What do you think is the legacy of Denim Delinquent? I don't know if there's a legacy. I think it's just, uh, you know, it's kind of like a pimple 
you know, on the rock and roll press. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just when you don't have any uh, goals, you don't have any kind of reason to be there. You're just doing it for the joy of, of writing. And uh, people, I don't think people always understand when you don't really give a shit about the cosmetics or the, the, the rules. You just sort of, hey, let's just try this. Let's just push this a little further. Let's, let's put a little cartoon in the corner and who cares if it's straight kind of stuff. I kind of miss that in the, in, the, in the punk scenes. They have a lot of spirit and stuff, but I kind of miss, as the years have gone on with Andes, I kind of miss that spirit. It's not there anymore. The amateur thing is going away, uh, craziness. So let's do this. Let's just put this as it doesn't fit there. Uh, experimentation, you know, it's got, we got so good at it. And I guess we should after all these decades of fanzines. But it got away from that simplicity of like, hey, we can do a, a Stooges coloring page if we want to. We can put in yeah. some sound graphics yeah, yeah, yeah. writing just, as naughty as we want. We're having writing that's not good writing. It's just rock and roll writing. Yeah. I mean, you know, like the sentences, you know, the compound sentences aren't necessary. And I don't know. I just don't like the technical aspect of how it's become in a lot of ways. I mean, there's, there's still great scenes. I mean, they're fantastic. I could never even come close to ugly things. Wow. I mean, that's just phenomenal. It is. It is. Yeah. And we, we oh, had on the show a while ago. He's, he's great. Oh, there's also something to be said. Well, I mean, if you get an issue of that, it'll last you a whole year. I, I, <laughs> There's I have so much lots in of back issues. I'm sure I've never read one fun, like cover to cover. Oh, you can't finish it. There's just, I mean, it's just information overload almost. It's just incredible. Yeah. Thank goodness there's something like that. Oh, it's, I'm, I'm so grateful that still exists. Like, yeah, I, Mike Stacks. Yeah, Mike, Mike deserves a medal for what he's doing. He's getting, I think he's getting more and more recognition. I think he, he did get the some, yeah, he the got book some he did. award yeah. from like the Journal of Popular Music or Popular Music Association. Um, so I think he's getting his propers from the industry a little bit. I foresee, I don't think he's met his limit yet. I think he's going to be rising star for some time. Slow burning energy that he has. It's going to be great uh, for him. Yeah. yeah, he just he just keeps going and yeah, <laughs> yeah, no yeah. sign of stopping, which is so articulate too. He is, he is, he's, he's such a good typewriter and and writes from a place of knowledge and passion and yeah, it takes it takes a certain kind of passion that is spoiling underneath that never goes away. So yeah. he's just going to resign himself that his rest of his life is going to be rock and roll. <laughs> Hey, there's most <laughs> things to be known for. I know, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. You mentioned how you would just like write these things in a rock and roll spirit without giving thought. I love how you guys were not shooting for anything lasting or eternal, but in the process, I think you've come up with something that has lasting value and that does, that's been immortalized in, in an anthology. So I, I think that says something about the spirit that you wrote in and, and how it's still meaningful to people today. Well, you know, when I when I set this out, uh, the Denver Lincoln book, I meant it to do as a self-published book. I was saving up money to do it. And thanks to Jeremy Cargill of Got, Got Kind of Lost Records, he put me in touch with Hozak. So I was so fortunate that I got in contact with the right people. 
who understood what that what denim was about. So it was really a rewarding experience with Todd uh, Novak, you know, giving me props along the long way and saying, "Oh, we'll publish it." I was going, "What? <laughs> Somebody's going to publish it? I don't have to." All right. If you could ask him to do a third printing, because some of us were a bit slow to act when it came out, I would love it and be so grateful. It is so hard. Oh, to I would love it too. You know, I mean, I mean, Todd has mentioned maybe next year, maybe sometime in the future. But you know, uh, these kind of little books like this, you know, they have a lifetime and it's over. So I don't know if there is any more life in it, yeah. uh, as far as a third. But that would be so cool to have another one. I was what it just went by so fast, you know, four years now, five years, whatever it's been. Yeah, I, I didn't know what was going on. I was just sort of like, what's happening? How is this actually being published? It's out of my hands. <laughs> I don't know. It's somebody else is taking my stuff and going to make a book out of it. Oh, no. <laughs> but as you know, to uh, Hosek's credit, they published it pretty much as I submitted it, you know, and they redid every page to make it look better and everything. But they kept, uh, you know, almost all of it intact the way I sent it to them. So, wow. Many thanks to Jim for taking the time to chat. You can find him on Facebook where he manages the Denim Delinquent fan page and occasionally posts scans from the mag. And feel free to petition Hozak Books and Records to do a third printing of that Denim Delinquent anthology. I'm grateful to you for checking out this episode of Rock Crit. Thank you so much. You can get in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is at rockritpod. If you're a fan of this show, please leave a review and a rating. It helps a ton. Take care and see you next time.